degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance because of her fear, because of fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, and precious stones, and pearls, and fine linen, and purple, and silk, and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood, and every article of ivory, and every article made from very costly wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour... Such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster, and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance, and crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. <laughs> then a strong angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found, will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets, trumpeters, will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman or any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because of all the nations were de because of all nations were de deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. Now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we, Lord, consider these remaining verses of this 18th chapter. Give us minds that understand, hearts that, that believe, Lord, hands and feet that obey. Help us, Lord, never to be among those who weep for the harlot and mourn for her. But Lord, help us to rejoice that we are. Uh, the true bride of Christ, the faithful bride of Christ. Lord, give us grace. I decrease that you may increase. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our exposition of the Apocalypse of John. Last Lord's Day, we considered what is both a call and a command from God to his people, living in a world that is attempting to lure us away from true worship to idolatry. The command is, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, the Lord has sent forth this call to his people to live as aliens in this temporal world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called not to cling to this temporal world, but to have our eyes fixed on Christ and on the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. Like Abraham, our eyes have been graciously enlightened to see the city whose builder and maker is the Lord. And we long to be there. Here in the remaining verses of the 18th chapter, John is given a glimpse into the um, the response of the wicked over the destruction of Babylon, the harlot. There are at least three things that I think are profitable for our instruction this morning. And may God help us to see here and to avoid the path of the unrighteous. Let's begin. Number one, lament over her, the great harlot. Lament over her, the great harlot. I'm going to be pulling from... Um, all of the verses from 6 to 24. So I'm not going to necessarily be going in order per se, but I'll be pulling from all of the verses. In the sixth verse, though, we'll begin here. The Lord declares the from heaven concerning Babylon, the great harlot, verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. Because of her great sin, the harlot, and because of her great pride, in one day, that is in one final swoop, the Lord brings upon the... Um, the harlot, plagues, pestilence, mourning and famine until she is finally judged in fire. Verse 8, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Um, the, the statement is, because God is God and she is not. The harlot has glorified herself. Uh, she has sinfully gained the attention and the affections of the nations through manipulation and the, the way that she has allured them, lured them in, chapter 18 is saying she's lured them in by wealth and sensuality. Self-exaltation, self-sufficiency has caused the harlot to believe that she is invincible. She's also deceived in thinking that um, those that she has lured in will never abandon her. In Isaiah chapter 47, 
The Lord exposes the heart of the prophet, or I'm sorry, the, the heart of the harlot through the prophet. Who says in her heart, here's what she says, I will be queen forever. John is quoting Isaiah 47. Here's what else she says. I am, and there is no one besides me. The harlot says this. John is quoting Isaiah 47. I am, she says, and there is no one besides me. She says, I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children, nor will I lose any who come to me. That sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? The harlot exalts herself as being equal to God. Rather than being eternal king, she sees herself as being eternal queen. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, 10, Before me there was no God formed. There will be none after me. He is the I am, right? The harlot both mocks God and exalts herself by saying, I am, and there was no one besides me. Her arrogance is fueled by Satan. She... She speaks on behalf of Satan. She says Satan's words. Satan, who sought to lay hold of equality with God. Uh, What is more, she believes that her husband, Satan, will never abandon her, and their children will also never abandon them. She has um, quite the audacity, to say the least. She believes that her children, and also that her husband, will contend for her, and that she will never mourn in defeat. That her husband will never be defeated, therefore she will never be a widow. Her husband is Satan. She believes he will never be defeated, therefore she will never be a widow. She will stand forever as queen. Well, if she's queen, who's king? Satan, in her estimation. And all of her um, broods of vipers will never be destroyed in in her estimation. But God through the prophet declares... But there are two things that will come upon you suddenly in one day. John is quoting this. Loss of children and widowhood. Your children will be destroyed and so will Satan. And so will you. They will, God says, they will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. The Apostle John sees Isaiah's prophecy as being Fulfilled in its fullest sense in that final day. Uh, There have been Babylons. There have been harlots who have risen and fallen. John sees a day when what Isaiah prophesies will be fulfilled in the fullest sense of the word. In the fullest sense of the prophecy on that final day. John sees one final rising and one final falling of the harlot and Babylon and Satan. The cup which was filled with the blood of the saints and the witnesses of Christ, that same cup is used symbolically to pour out judgment on her twofold. Twice as much as she has poured out on the saints. She's given twice the amount of judgment. When judgment is poured out on her, listen to this. When judgment is poured out on her, here is the response of the kings and merchants of the earth. Verse 9. Kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously with her. They are her um, her children. They will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. 
Last week, we recounted the hesitation or the lingering of Lot when he was warned to escape the judgment of God that would fall upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that the angel said to Lot, Genesis chapter 19, 15, up out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. He and his family, uh, Lot, his wife and his two daughters, were by the grace of God physically compelled, even dragged out of the city in order to escape being judged alongside of the wicked. And the Lord rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But something happened. As, as Lot's family is being dragged out. You remember what happened? As Lot and, and his, his wife and his two children are being dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as God is raining down fire and brimstone. Lot is running forth toward um, salvation, security. His two children are running forth toward um, security. Not necessarily soul salvation, just security. They're running forth, running away from security. And as they're running forth, there is a command that is causing them to keep their eyes forward. The command is, don't look back. Run forward to escape judgment. Don't look back. And as they are running, Lot and his children and his wife, with their eyes fixed forward, one of them actually looks back. Why does she look back? You know who she is. She is Lot's wife. She looks back as judgment is falling on the wicked. And she looks back. Someone might go, maybe she could not believe what was happening. Or maybe she wanted to get a, a, a vision of just how terrible it was going to be. But I think that her look back... is stated for us here in the 18th chapter, the reason why she looks back, is stated for us in the 18th chapter by kings and merchants of the earth, who when they see the destruction of the harlot, mourn over her. I think that when Lot's wife looks back, there was a type of mourning that was taking place, a weeping over Sodom and Gomorrah that took place, not because they were going to um, go down to Sheol, um, in judgment of God, but rather because something that she loved, someone that she loved was being destroyed. And because her heart was there, she was judged along with them. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, they have a similar response when they see the judgment of the harlot. Notice their tears throughout the 18th chapter. They're crying throughout the entire chapter. Verse 9. Verse nine. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality. This is why they're crying. Who lived sensuously with her. Weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Abraham stood at a distance and he saw um, where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. And sees the smoke of God's judgment rising from where they were. The kings and merchants look and they see where she used to be. And they weep because the times of immorality are no more. The times of their sensuality, they are no more. 
Verse 11, they are crying. Verse 15, they are crying. Verse 18, they are crying. Verse 19, they are crying. They are weeping and mourning along with Lot's wife over the destruction of their former lover. Remember, Babylon the Great is the great harlot. In the 18th chapter, the city is referred to over and over again as her. If you read throughout the entire 18th chapter, count how many times her is mentioned, she is mentioned. It's overwhelming in comparison to the fact that Babylon is a city, but in the 18th chapter, she, she, she is overwhelmingly referred to as her. I think the importance of this is to drive home the fact that that there is there's a love affair happening with image bearers and this harlot. Uh, the image bearers of God who should be giving worship to God are in love, not with God, but with this harlot. The kings and the merchants. Uh, they are John's way of saying to the church, it's the government. It's those who are um, who are working for the government. Who are worshiping false gods and who are calling you to do so as well. And if you don't, then you won't be able to buy, sell, work, provide for yourself. The people who are able to do that is because they've given worship to false gods. That's why they're able to do what they're doing. They're worshiping the harlot. Don't do it. Verse 12, they committed acts of immorality with what? How, how, how do you commit acts of immorality? How do, we, how do you know that you've worshipped her? Because you devoted yourself, listen to John's list, You've devoted yourself, rather than to God, to gold, to silver, stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, uh, silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, and the list goes on and on and on. John's saying all of these, all of these created things are what people are giving themselves to in worship. Now listen, we may not have the same things on our list per se in, in our time. But we do have lists. There are lists that we can think of that we are giving ourselves to today. Listen, the kings of the earth, they cry because no one buys from them anymore. And in response to not being able to um, exchange and in that exchange, purchase things that satisfy them. They're throwing dust on their heads like mourners do at a, at a funeral. They were in love with this harlot. And now she's dead. Remember, the harlot is anything that allures you, that lures you away from worship to the one true God, devotion to the one true God, and, and calls you to worship it. John gives us a big list, doesn't he? You may, you may go cinnamon, flour, spice, none of that applies to me. Something may though. We'll talk about that probably in our, in our second, maybe t- toward the end of this point. These who do these are marked by the beast. They, they mourn over the thing that they loved being destroyed. In verse 10 and 15, they're standing at a distance in fear of her torment. Now that may, that may initially sound like, um, they see her suffering the judgment of God and they know that they're next, therefore they stand at a distance, but that's actually not the case. In the original language, it's communicating a type of horror. They are, uh, appalled. They, they have extreme despair. Listen to this. 
and disappointment. They are standing in horror at a distance because they are they are appalled by the fact that she, the lover, is being judged. That they are um, overwhelmingly disappointed that she's no more. Now, let's be careful not to think of a real harlot. Remember, she is anything. What thing? Well, gold, silver, precious stones. Anything that is adored more than God. Cinnamon, perfume, wine, wheat, cattle, horses, listen to this. Slaves and even human lives. John just goes through the entire list of everything. Even humans. People that you can love more than God. You can't look at the list and go, it doesn't apply to me. Um, maybe not, but in, 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 the, in the family of those things, there is something. Their pleasure, the things that they used to find satisfaction in, they are no more. They're no more and they're no longer available. The joy, security, comfort, prosperity, and whatever other self-gratifying word that one can think of, that those things used to give them are no more. Ah. I'm going to be very careful not to get too specific because we can start to, to, I can start to fill in those blanks and then they're going to be too specific and someone's going to say he's talking about me. Fill in the blank for yourself. But notice this. The tears, the, the mourning, the weeping of the wicked is not on account of their sin. They are on account of the things that assisted them in their sin. Being no more. Their sin partner is no more. Uh, The one that they used to enjoy sin with is no more. They're not weeping over sin. They're weeping over their, uh, the old guys say partner in crime. They're, They're weeping over their partners of sin being no more. Revelation 9, when the final plagues are poured out on the wicked in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, remember remember this, did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship demons. They're not repenting of that. Listen to this. And the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor walk, they're not repenting of worshiping those things. They feel no sorrow for giving worship to someone, something other than God. They feel sorrow over the thing that they worship other than God being no more. On the day of judgment, when God sends forth his angels to execute judgment in his holy justice, they will not, the sinful will not repent nor weep over their sinful idolatry. When sinners are judged, they're not going to say, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, God. They're going to say, how dare you, God, take away my, my harlot. They may feel sorrow, but it will not be sorrowful in the sense of repentance toward God. God, forgive me. Not in the least. Because repentance is granted. It is a gift. It is a change of heart. Amen. 
they will not have, they don't have it now and they don't, ha- and they won't have it then. They will feel or express no remorse toward God over their transgressions. They will be like Lot's wife who looked back and felt sorrow for the city, not for the God who created them and whom they sinned against. In Revelation 16, in the day of judgment, verse 10, and they gnawed their tongues. They, 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 they chewed on their tongues because of pain. And yet, even still, they blaspheme God. In great suffering, in great torment, but it's not going to cause them to, to seek repentance. Instead, they blaspheme God. Um, if someone goes, how do you know they're going to, to say, how dare you, God? Because Revelation says, even in pain of their, of their judgment, they're still blaspheming God. They still will not repent and turn from their sin. They did not repent because of the pain of their because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The hand of God does not restrain their tongue on that day. He allows them to reveal why they're being judged. He does not. Um, he does not hold back their tongue. Yes, say why you're being judged, and they blaspheme God. They curse the Holy One who has given them life, breath, and all the things that they actually did enjoy in His created world, but did not give Him thanks for them. Instead, wept when they were destroyed. Saints of God, you have been sealed. You who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, it's time for self-examination. Is there anything, is there anyone in our lives that if taken away, we would weep, we would mourn, and join our voices with the wicked who blaspheme God for taking it away? I, uh, God, how dare you take that away from me? You could have taken anything, but not that. You could have taken anyone, but not him or her. The Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, he is God and there is no other. Therefore, all things that become greater than him in our hearts must be removed. Or or they must be placed in their their proper placement below God, not above him. Dear ones, ask yourselves this morning, truthfully and honestly, Are there any idols in there? Are there any idols hiding in there? Are you storing them away somewhere in there? The Lord said, no man can serve two masters. Therefore, the call to examine ourselves, it is an appropriate call. We all constantly need to do this. Lord, do not let this. I enjoy this. I appreciate this. Don't let this become a God to me. Don't let me allow this to become a God to me. No doubt the seven churches knew people that they used to call brother and sister who left the church in order to avoid persecution and to maintain a certain quality of life by offering worship to pagan gods. God, I, I... I've got to, we've got to live. I've got to provide for my family. 
Or I see what they have and I just want it more than I want you. In doing so, the Lord, the words of our Lord Jesus ring true. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? The kings and merchants and those who um, bought from them and exchanged with them, they forfeited their soul in exchange for something that was promised to them by the harlot. What is that? Let's go to point number two, the deception of the harlot. This is again verses 6 to 24. In this chapter, it seems as though wealth, monetary wealth, is the thing that, that is that is the thrust of this chapter, if you will. Um, wealth and prosperity appear to be the thrust of this chapter. Uh, it, it is the thing that is unveiling who the harlot really is. Who is the harlot? Um, we, we take off her veil, and, and she's all of these, she's all of these things that that denote wealth and prosperity, and sensuality as well. But I think there's something deeper at play here. We see her in the 17th chapter. She's sitting upon many waters, sitting on the beast. She's draped in royal colors of purple and scarlet. She is adorned with precious stones of gold and pearl. And in the 18th chapter, she's destroyed and her, her mourners weep at the loss of wealth, prosperity and sensuality. They, they weep at the loss of these things. This is verse 15, verse 17. The harlot... While she can be anything that lures men away from God and worship to God, it seems that wealth, prosperity, and sensuality are, are kind of the driving forces here. This sermon could very, very well easily be, like some that I've heard, just about the, the wickedness of money. I do think there is something deeper going on than just, than just greed. Because at the heart of greed, there is something that greed is, lure, greed is luring people into something deeper. People don't just want because they just want everything. There's something that they think having these things will give them. You will remember the parable of our Lord uh, Jesus, the parable of the sowers. In Matthew chapter 13, also in, in Mark the the third soil, the third seed that is sown on the soil, the, the Lord says, this one is the one in whom the seed was sown, but it's sown amongst amongst thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world. Listen to this word and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. <clears throat> Interesting that the Lord says, wealth deceives, prosperity deceives. It's interesting because money is not a person. It doesn't have the ability to speak. But our Lord says that it, that it is deceitful. That prosperity, wealth, has the ability to deceive a man. Those who are standing at a distance who weep, and mourn over the harlot, they're weeping over her because they believed something about what she said to be, they believe, they believe that she said something that, that did not come true. They were deceived. What did they believe? 
What did she say? What does wealth say to you? What, what does prosperity say to you? What, what does even sensuality say to you? I'm sure there are a number of things. But I think for this point, we can go back to the very beginning. For our answer as to what she says and what what man believes. The serpent comes to the woman. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman responds, well, uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. Satan's response, you will not surely die. Satan, the harlot, what's the deception? You can't trust God. God is not truthful. God is not eternally true. What he says, you can't believe. Well, God is true. He's eternally true. There's no falsehood in God. When God speaks, there is no error on his tongue. There is no miscalculation from his perfect mind. And yet Satan accuses God of being untruthful. Satan, who speaks through harlots, speaks his native tongue, which is deception, and accuses God of the very deception that he is engaged in. In the harlot, who speaks on behalf of Satan, she lies about the trustworthiness of God. You can't trust God to provide for you. Go this route and you'll find what you're looking for. Through Satan, she's luring man away to herself. It, it, let, let me say, it was not just the fruit. Yes, she's looking at the fruit. She's saying that it is um, nice to the eyes, desirable to, or uh, uh, looks good to eat, and also able to do something to make one wise. We're looking at money and wealth and prosperity and sensuality. It's not just the thing. It's what we think the thing is going to give us. She believed the fruit would accomplish something beyond the fruit. It's not just, wow, this is really good fruit. I knew it. It's what she believed fruit would do for her. And that's exactly what the harlot tempts all image bearers with. If you pursue this, it will it will produce at the end of the line this. And that's ultimately what you want. Listen, when you have money, it's paper. It's a piece of paper. When you have coins, whether they be gold or silver, it's just metals. It's just paper. You you have them when our kids when you uh, give them five dollars twenty dollars they go wow they look at at the number I have I have five I have I have ten and twenty I've never seen so much but it's what they know they can do with it give it to um give it to my son Azrael he's gonna treat it for what it is <laughs> he's gonna flap it around it's just paper because he does not yet realize what it can do what it can give him 
He's not innocent, that's for sure. But he doesn't realize the, the value of this. It's just paper. And then as we grow older, we, we, we seek and give up all sorts of things to get this because we think that it's going to give us other things that ultimately are going to fulfill us. It's not just the fruit. It's what we think the fruit will do for us in the end. Is it going to make your life better? Will it make you more satisfied, more fulfilled, more happy? Do you think you'll have no more problems? The harlot, speaking on behalf of Satan, puts into question also the goodness of God by claiming that God is restricting you from good things. He doesn't want you to have that. Because having that will ultimately make you like him. Well, well, guess what the woman, when she looks at the fruits, sees that it might do for her. This might make me one like God. But it's, is it wrong to, be like, to want to be like God? Who, are, do we not say that, that we are being conformed to the image of God? Do, do we not say that, that we're being deified? Yes, we want to be like God. But how we get there is the problem is, is, is the issue at hand. Pride is found in Adam and Eve's heart. Because in wanting to be like God, they usurp his commands. They transgress his commands. They go beyond what God has commanded in order to achieve godlike status. And instead, when they oppose God, they realize. They have failed. Here's another thing. Um, God is restricting freedom from you. He doesn't want you to be as free as you could be. God is, is withholding insight from you. He doesn't want you to know the things that you could know. The harlot is accusing God of keeping ultimate good, ultimate insight, um, ultimate, um, ultimate potential of humankind, keeping all... All, uh, even goodness, all of these things, God is keeping them from you because in the end, fullness of joy and satisfaction is, is at the end of the road and God doesn't want you to have it. Uh, ask an unbeliever why they don't serve God. Too many rules. Too many regulations. I can't do this and I can't do that. Well, they believe the harlot, haven't they? The harlot says you can do whatever you want. And you will find joy there. The unbeliever says, sign me up. And we were among them at one point, weren't we? We kept following the harlot and following the harlot. And every time that we did, we said, what she's promising me is not, it's not coming. It's not, it's, it's not here. I don't have what she said I would have. It's not satisfying me. It's not fulfilling me. The harlot lures men away from God by promising to give all the things that God is withholding. And in the end, you will have fullness of joy, fullness of all of these things. Those whose names are not written in the book of life, they, they are lured away. You may be lured away. They are, let's say, they are lured away, finally lured away. All of us were lured away at, at one point or another, but not finally lured away. Praise be to God. Those who have taken the mark of the beast. Those who are in a love affair with this harlot. They are revealed by their minds and by their actions who they belong to and who they love. And in the end, they will realize like Adam and Eve that they have been deceived. Isaiah, Ezekiel the prophet says, 
uh, this tells of a time when the wicked will realize that they've been deceived. And here's what they're going to do. They fling their silver into the streets. They throw their gold into the streets. Their silver and their gold become abhorrent to them. The silver and their gold will not deliver them in the day of, of, of the wrath of the Lord, Ezekiel says. Silver and gold cannot satisfy their appetites any longer, nor can it fill their stomachs. Their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. There's going to come a time when they realize we've invested in the wrong things and they're going to throw all of their money to the streets. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It did nothing for me. It did not give me what it promised. And they're going to curse God for it. Not say, God, have me back. Instead, they'll blaspheme God. We should weep for them now. We should warn them it's not going. Look at scripture says, Ezekiel says, you're going to throw this away one day. You're going to look at it and say, it didn't give me what it said it would give me one day. Tell them, warn them now. It's not going to pan out the way you think in the end. Adam and Eve, they thought the fruit was going to give them something and it gave them nothing but death. And all of us death. They realize wealth could not keep its promises. They, they, in fact, did not attain equality with God. They did not receive God-like insight that they desired. They did not receive satisfaction. Fulfillment eluded them, and now they're only empty. This could very well and easy, I'll tell you the truth, really easily be just a sermon about money bad, greed bad. And it's true, we must not depend upon just wealth. The deeper issue at hand is this, it's worship. Who is your God? That's the deeper issue at hand. Money's actually not evil in and of itself. It's just paper, it's just, it's just metals. It actually is used for good things, isn't it? You, you got here because you bought a car with money. But if you use the car that you bought with money to go somewhere other than here on the Lord's Day, then you're not using it for good purposes, are you? Amen. I've got money. I'm going to the game on Sunday. Well, now you're using that money for wrong purposes. Amen. No man can serve two masters. Amen. The churches of Revelation, they're faced with this dilemma. The Roman government at that time, influenced by Satan, was beginning to require offerings of allegiance to Caesar, evidenced by a pinch of salt or a pinch of, of, of incense, offered at the temple with these words, Caesar is Lord. Each local business that belonged to trade guilds, and they all did, they were being over, overran, overlooked by the Roman government. These trade guilds, they varied from stonework to craftsmanship to, to cattle work to field work, you name it. The Roman government influenced every single one of these labor unions. That if their employees did not offer this pinch of incense to worship to Caesar, then they must be noted and excluded. The Lord said to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. I know it's hard. I know that you're suffering that right now because you won't give this offering of worship. Therefore, you've lost your job. When you were marked, you were persecuted. When you were marked, you were even prob probably in imprisoned. No doubt, the church knew people. 
who left the church in order to save their skin. The church of Laodicea, the, the Lord Jesus warned them of not assimilating to the culture. Who is the beast? Who is the harlot? That was prosperous. Don't say what Laodicea says, which is this. I am rich and become wealthy and I have need of no thing. The Lord says, don't be like them. Don't assimilate to that. Don't be like them. Because though they are a prosperous city, they're wretched, miserable. Listen to this. Poor, blind, and naked. That's what they really are. Those who depend on idols. Those who depend on their wealth. And you don't need to be wealthy to depend upon wealth. Some of us, I think all of us in here, the kind of caller that we all are, would say, this is easy. I'm not wealthy. It's not for me. You don't need to be wealthy to depend upon wealth. How many people do we see lining up at lotto, lotto, at, at lotto lines, uh, hoping to strike it rich one day? They are depending upon wealth. One day I'm going to strike it big. You drive uh, on, on the streets and you see this person at the casino just won $25,000 and you're getting ready to go to the Tachi Palace. He won, I'll win. You don't need to have wealth in order to depend upon wealth. In the end, all wealth will not be able to save. All prosperity will do you no good unless you are wealthy in Christ, unless you are prosperous in Christ, unless your love affairs with Christ. How must we live in light of these things in order to avoid the pitfalls of the wicked? Let's go through our last point. Number three, (laughs) look to Christ and know true riches. Look to Christ and know true wealth. In contrast to the temptation and ultimate fall of Adam and Eve, the first man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the divine exemplar who stood against Satan and all of Satan's advances in the wilderness. Concerning the reliability and trustworthiness of God and his word, our Lord said, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is reliable. God's word is true. It sustains us, listen to this, more than bread. Man does live on bread, but not on bread alone. Man does live on bread, but not on bread alone. We must not, we, we, we will not know life, true life, abundant life, apart from the word of God. Concerning the goodness of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God is good and there is no lack of good within God. He is altogether good. And we must not test his goodness by seeking greater goods. And also, we must not think for one moment that because we are lacking in certain areas of our life, that our bank accounts are not full, that it is evidence that God is in fact not good. How could the wicked be prospering And I am living check to check that I am depending upon um, these things in order for me to to sustain, to be sustained. That does not take away from the goodness of God. God is absolutely, truly, fully, completely good. There is no lack of good within God, even when our lives are not as as perfect, earthly speaking, as we would like them to be. We know where true wealth is found. This is why you are rich. This is why you are prosperous. Because you understand what is true wealth. 
You were ransomed, First Peter 1, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You don't think like you, you used to think. You've been rescued from that futile way of thinking. And you've been rescued not by perishable things such as silver and gold, which will be cast into the street by the wicked one day. But you've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Christ is of infinite value, and you were washed. You were washed in blood that is of infinite value. Amen. You've been you've been bathed in blood that is of infinite value. Saints, you are you are infinitely rich in Christ. Amen. Our redemption could not be paid with by silver or gold. It could not be purchased by flour, wine, or spice. It could not be paid for by, by an infinite number of fallen bearers, image bearers of God. If every single person who ever lived altogether offered themselves as a sacrifice to God to pay for sins, none of it would be worth what one drop of blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worth Amen. to save us from our sins. Amen. It is only through eternal wisdom of God, who is the word of God that assumed our flesh to heal our flesh, that we are ransomed from our former way of life. We were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The one who is of infinite value. Paid the price for our sin. And we deserved to pay God infinite punishment. But in his love and his grace and his mercy, he lavished on us true riches. Ephesians 1 says that redemption through the blood of Christ, forgiveness of our trespasses, is this. It's God lavishing on us the riches of his grace. You're rich. God has lavished on you the riches of his grace. You have every um, every heavenly treasure is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, What's the difference between heavenly treasures and earthly treasures? Heavenly treasures don't rot. Right. Moths will not come and eat them. They will not be burned up one day, but they will last for an eternity. And those treasures are yours in Christ. This world's wealth is passing away. This world's prosperity is passing away. It's fleeting. The dollar continues to lose its value. Trinkets that we save to sell are, are, are up today and down tomorrow. But the blood of Christ never loses its power. Amen. Amen. It stands because Christ stands. Effective for all time, for all of those who trust in Him alone. We are commanded to avoid storing up treasures on earth. They will be devoured. Thieves will come in and steal them. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What are those treasures? They're good works. Works of righteousness. Love toward your neighbor. Love toward your brother and sister in Christ. Mercy to the poor. Caring for those who are not cared for. Compassion. Forgiveness. Mercy. Gentleness. Patience. They are calling people to repent and believe. Being a member of a church and a good member of a church. They're giving what earthly wealth that you do have to advance the eternal kingdom of God. Sending money to help missionaries, helping to build churches so that the gospel can be housed in a place, if I want to say it that way, where the gospel can be preached on a continual basis with a, a, a congregation. These and so much more are the good deeds that will last forever and you will be rewarded. 
We work hard on earth. But do you work hard for the eternal kingdom? Are you constantly looking for moments and opportunities to be a witness? Saints, those are treasures that are stored up for us in heaven that will last forever. I encourage you, have a right and true view of wealth. And whatever earthly wealth that you have, use it to advance the kingdom, not the kingdom of Satan. Ask the Lord to search your hearts this morning to put to death any idols that are hiding there. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but I will, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Is it wrong to have earthly things? No. Is it wrong to enjoy them even? No. Just don't let them become your gods. Do not give them all, I say that, all your time, all your mind, all your effort, all your resources. If we do, we will find ourselves weeping with the wicked over the harlot. The Lord tells us of a parable about the value of the kingdom of God in Mark 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells some of the things that he has. Is that what the scriptures say? Ten uh, percent of what he has. All of what he has. And buys that field. The value of the kingdom of heaven is such that a man would give up all of his earthly riches in exchange for God and his kingdom. There is nothing on this earth that would compare and that can compare to what God offers. Our Lord's final response to Satan in the wilderness. Go, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only God is worthy of worship. You've been made by him, for him, and to give him praise and honor alone. Your time, your resources, your mind, your affections, your efforts must preeminently, first and foremost, belong to God. Seek first his kingdom. All those other things, they'll be added. Your love for God will cause you to walk upright before him. And guess what? Guess what benefits from this? This right worship, this right ordering of God first. Your church benefits from that. You won't miss worship. You'll be a good member. You will love God and his church so much so. That there will be nothing that stops you from joining the saints for worship. And when you're here, you'll be an encouragement to them. You'll be um, salt while you're here. You'll be making the place place even brighter when you're here. We all gather as lights, and when when lights gather, it becomes even more bright. You will gather and be adding to the light that is here, not diminishing it. You'll see them as your eternal family, not just someone I see once a week. Your spouse will benefit from this kind of worship. And if you're single, you will benefit from this kind of worship. Your earthly family will benefit from this kind of worship. Your friends, your co-workers, etc. When worship is rightly ordered, 
everything in life is better. Doesn't mean there won't be trouble and hardship, but you'll have a better perspective on what life is all about. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for her on your behalf. We will be vindicated. The courts of earth have called us um, idolaters, have called us fools for following Christ. But the courts of heaven say otherwise. She will be destroyed in one day. Put your hope in Christ. Only Christ alone can fully satisfy and give you all that your heart naturally longs for. God has placed that hole there so that he can fill it. Amen.